Thank you, thank you. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good to be back with my CC Delco family. Good to see many of you come through the doors at Coastal Christian throughout the summer. We appreciate your presence there. So last time I was with you was at the beginning of the year, and we were a few months shy of welcoming to the world my wife and I's firstborn child on May 10th. We did just that. We welcomed Willow Joy to the world, and I have her here with us. And I don't know about you, but th- what you picture in your mind, how this is going to go down, you know, you have your mind made up on the perfect scene, the baby's going to come out, and of course mom's going to kind of be, ha- be able to gain her composure, and then I'm going to be in the picture, and that will be what you see on Instagram. That's not how it happened. In fact, Willow swallowed a worrisome amount of meconium. And we didn't know what that meant until they explained to us with so many terms that when the baby comes out, we're going to have to take the baby, and everything happens so quick. Willow arrived. They snatched her out of literally mom. They took her over to a tray. They put her down, and her chest was literally moving a million miles per hour as this nursing team began to go to work. They began to stick tubes down my little baby's throat, and they began to suction out of her what I discovered was meconium, but it got worse. They realized she wasn't making any progression, so they decided to put her on that tray and take her down to the NICU. They allowed me to go as the father. I remember getting into this room, and it got worse. Of course, nurses and doctors are coming out, and they're actually talking about what they were going to do next. The next part of the intervention was about to take place. Her numbers on the screen were not fading. They were not slowing. Her chest again began to rapidly go up and down this little sweet life. And I only did what I instinctively knew to do. I began to talk. Hey, Willow, daddy's here. Hey, sweet girl, daddy's here. And remarkably, as the nurse brought all of our attention to that board, her numbers began to slow down. Her little chest began to find a rhythm. The nurse said, keep talking, dad. I began to talk to my daughter. Now, I got to bring it into the first Uh, the several months before her delivery was, I would read scriptures to her in Sarah's womb. And now she understood her father's voice. She heard her father's voice. And in the midst of this time of chaos, as I spoke to her, she heard her father's voice and she began to calm down. Are you understanding what I'm saying? When you learn to hear your father's voice, does not matter what's going on around you, you begin to find peace. You begin to be still, Psalm 4610, and know that he is God. Now, it's important for me to preface where we're going next. With that story in mind, being able to hear God's voice, you need to know this, church, that God speaks Bible. What does that mean? It means the individual that does not know Bible does not know God. Let me say that again. God speaks Bible, and the individual who does not know Bible does not know God. Now, when we're careless about Bible reading, we'll care less about godly living. When you don't have time in your week to get into God's word, oh, I'll get to that. And then I get to Sunday morning, I'll let the pastor read the Bible for me. When we're careless about Bible reading, we are making a statement that we can care less about godly living. Look at me carefully. The prescription for the Christian and how we're to live is in the word of God. I must spend time in God's heart to understand his pulse, to understand his will, to understand his 
way, and what I'm seeing is an alarming trend in the church in America where professing Christians don't know Bible. We are scripturally deficient, biblically illiterate. How's that possible to claim a name yet not know anything about the nature of the name I claim? Don't believe me? A large group of professing, I use that word intentionally, professing Christians when asked about certain sayings, certain quotes, whether or not they were in the Bible, this group believed that God helps those who help themselves was a Bible verse. Now, I'll volunteer that if that's you. That is not a Bible verse. Nowhere in this book will you find that. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who come to him for help. This same group of people believed, thanks, Mom, I appreciate that, God doesn't give us more than we can handle was a Bible reference. No, God gives us way more than we can handle. The only reason we reach out to him for his hand is because what I'm going through, I can't handle. This same group believed to thine own self be true was a Bible verse. Oh, no, don't don't do that. Jeremiah says, the heart, wicked, desperate, deceitful. Don't follow self. Jesus said, deny self. Jesus said, Self got to die. Pick up your cross is the crucifixion of self. The same group of people, this is the closest they got. They thought money is the root of all evil was in the Bible. It's the love of money, the obsession of money. What's my point? My point is this. If you were the enemy, what would be your first aim or your first tactic? Would it not be to remove God's word from the hands of the people? Would it not be to push God's word out of even the churches? Now, that is not a hypothetical scenario. In fact, I don't want to spend too much time here, but the church was thrusted into what we know as the Dark Ages. Here's what happened. In A.D. 500, the people that were supposed to represent God took the scriptures and began to administer it to the people in Latin, yet nobody spoke Latin. And the entire culture became hedonistic. We call it the Dark Ages, and the only thing that got the church out of the Dark Ages was when a man named William Tyndale rose up and said, I'm going to translate the Bible, which led to his death. And then he gave the word of God back to the people. Now, in case you say, well, that's history. I go, no, less than 60 years ago, 60 years, the enemy has done just that, where he's removed the word of God from the public square, 1962, 1963 a Supreme Court decision that was rendered down that said the Word of God can no longer be used in the educational system. And you can no longer pray. Took it right out of the schools. And what you can see is the trajectory of the moral condition of our country go right down the tubes. In fact, from 1940 to 1962, when teachers were asked, what is your greatest complaint against the students. They said their greatest complaint was that kids were chewing gum when they weren't supposed to. They were running in the hallways. They were talking out of turn. They were butting in line in the cafeteria. That was the greatest complaint from 1963 to date. The complaints have gone from trivial to criminal. Teachers are saying that the crime rate during school hours The kids are engaging with alcohol and drugs, sexual assault in the bathrooms. We got to trace that back to a certain time, a certain place. It is when we decided to remove, look at me, God's perfect authority 
The moment we remove God's word, perfect authority, there's no standard. Of course, the spirit of relativism has saturated our country where people say, don't force your truth on me. Truth's not absolute. Truth is relative. No, the Bible says truth is definitive. Don't force that on me. I'll do what I want. My truth's my truth. And you see in the condition of America, the moment we say we don't want God, and look, the world is doing whatever it can to push God out of it. But look at me. Don't you dare let them push God out of you. See, we look out in America and we go, where is God? Where is he? Two young boys, brothers, mischievous, constantly getting caught up in trouble. They would take things that weren't theirs. That was their, their biggest thing. They would take and steal things. So anytime something turned up missing at the church, in their own home, everybody knew it was those two rascals. Finally, the mom had it up to here. Couldn't deal with them anymore. They kept taking things. Things were turning up missing. She said to the pastor, can you deal with them? He says, sure. I'll remind them that God is watching. I'll just let them know where God is. The moment I bring to their attention that God is watching them, they'll stop taking things. The pastor called the one boy into his office, sat him down. He said, look at me, son. Where is God? Little boy stopped, stunned. The pastor said, I'm going to ask you again, where is God? The boy again, mute. The pastor said, I'm only going to ask one more time, where is God? The boy jumped out of his seat, ran out of the office, ran all the way home into his bedroom, slamming the door. His older brother was waiting, asking, what happened? He goes, oh boy, we're in big trouble now. God is missing, and they think we had something to do with it. Wait for the punchline. You see, if God is missing, we did have something to do with it. If God is missing in your marriage, you had something to do with it. If God is missing in a church or a ministry, the people had something to do with it. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. You ever heard this verse before? It's often quoted as, where there is no vision, the people perish. And a lot of thought leaders, a lot of church movements, church growth leaders will step out on a stage and say, hey, where there's no vision, we will perish. And God has given me a vision, and he told me we got to go over there and build a bigger building. And there's nothing wrong with building a bigger building for that sake, unless building the bigger building is for the building's sake and not the kingdom's sake. So ministers use this verse to accomplish what they want. That's not what it says. Not even close. It says where there is no biblical revelation, where there is no unveiling of God's word, the people cast off restraint. There's no moral guidelines. The people will run amok. We're seeing that in society where God's word is not communicated authentically, thoroughly. The people will run amok. And we're seeing that in the church in America that is widely known as the pop church. You ever heard about it? The pop church is known as the popular church. They're gaining a lot of momentum, and here's what they do. They want to entertain the masses. They've turned the church service into a concert, and they believe if they could get people into these seats and we entertain them, then we'll keep them because they'll want to keep coming back. They're taking their cue from the culture and not God's word, and you got to have discernment to see it. If we get people in, entertainment for the masses, look at me, inevitably, entertainment for the masses will lead to a rearrangement of the message. You want to know why? Because I want to offend you. 
don't want to offend you, so I want to make sure that I sugarcoat the scriptures. And when you water down the scriptures, you are producing waterlogged Christians. Carnal presentation, using props, and there's nothing wrong with props unless you're pointing to the person. Their desire is to be cute, and they forget to tell the truth. And here's what this looks like. The word of God does not bow to popular opinion polls. Did you know that? It's not looking out in culture and saying, I got to take my cue from culture. I take my cue from Christ and what Christ said and what Christ did. And the word of God, therefore, is no longer the word of God when the presentation projects popularity over authority. It is not popular in the church to teach about self being denied. The masses would rather hear about self being esteemed. Pump me up. Tell me how awesome I am. Tell me that I'm the captain of my own destiny. Oh, no, no, no. To thine own self be true. Do not do that. It's not popular in the church to teach about sin. We don't mind sin being brought up, for all have sinned and fallen short. I'm a sinner. But the moment the scriptures touch on specific sins, whether homosexuality or jealousy or lust or lies, John the Apostle said, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. And we condone sin. Here, under the guise, God loves me just the way I am. Oh, he does. But he died to remake you into the way he is. It is not popular to teach about Satan as a real enemy. I'd rather he just be used as an analogy of light and darkness. But the Bible is very explicit. It says there's a real enemy out there looking to devour us, looking to devour our children, looking to divide our marriages. He is real. He's seeking. He's prowling. Do you believe that? Oh, I can identify him, Pastor. He works in politics. He only works in false religion. He works in drugs, alcohol, and all ungodly living. And I go, oh, he works in that. But he does his most damage through the unbiblical Christian. Bringing him right into the church with the believer who does not know Bible. It's not popular to teach about suffering in the church. Certain people's theology say that suffering and God just don't mix. Look at me. Suffering and God not only mix, God chose suffering as his fix. God chose the cross as the tool to salvage the sin-saturated soul. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, before I suffered, I ran amok. I went astray, but now I keep your word. Are you seeing the agent that brought me back to the word? Suffering. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me, the psalmist writes, that I've been afflicted. Whoa, 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 whoa. Good and affliction in the same sentence? Yeah, it's good for me that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.75, in your faithfulness, God, you have afflicted me. See, the point is this. The word of God is active. It's powerful. Hebrews 4.12, it's living. It's operative is the word. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. For the word of God is living. It's alive. The word powerful is active. 
operative, which is related to the word operation. It's what a surgeon does. When you go into surgery, you are trusting the surgeon to open you up physically to heal something, to restore something. We understand that's what the word of God does spiritually, emotionally. I place myself into the hands of the master physician who opens me up. And the word dagger here is not a samurai sword. It's a dagger that a priest would use at the altar. They'd bring him all the sacrifices and he would take that dagger and he'd fillet them. He'd open them up. And what would be revealed were the entrails, the organs. Are you seeing the connection here? This is why it means when you open up your heart to the word of God and the word of God is allowed to do surgery, it begins to restore, it begins to heal. And that's what it means in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter four. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you keep reading, it'll introduce you to the high priest, Jesus Christ, who can sympathize or empathize with us in our weaknesses, who in all points was tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the reason why when I am transparent before the word of God, and the word of God is active and operative in my heart, in my soul, it's not because God is opening me up to shame me. He's opening me up to grace me. That's why verse 16 says, therefore, you can come to the throne room of grace anytime, any place, and you can find grace and mercy to help you in the time of your need. We need examples. What does that mean practically? Well, if the word of God is active, powerful, operative, it's Jesus Christ. The word became flesh, John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and he became the active and powerful word of God. And we see this most clearly in John chapter four. He's weary from a journey. He sits at a well. His disciples go off into the nearby towns. He's waiting as a divine appointment with a woman from Samaria who comes. He engages her. First word from Jesus. Hey, can you get me a drink of water? She says, how are you, a Jew, speaking to me a Samaritan, and then it gives a parenthetical note that says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. There was a racial tension there. Jesus responds to her and says, if you knew who I was that spoke to you, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. She says, I want me some of that. Jesus says, I know you do. Go home and get your husband and come back. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, I know you don't. You've had five, and the one you know now, not your husband. you got to pause and go, wait a second. Why is the Lord of love, the God of grace, dealing with this woman so bluntly? Why did Jesus go at her like that? Why is he wildly and radically handling her? Because without conviction, there is never any conversion. And Jesus Christ... The living, powerful word of God is doing spiritual surgery on her soul. The reason she came to the well during the hottest part of the day is because of the shame that she had in her community. So she comes out at the blistering, hottest part. She's hiding in broad daylight. How many Christians are hiding in broad daylight? Oh, we're here. But have we allowed the word of God to deal with our sin? 
Have we allowed the word of God to do what Jesus is about to do for this woman? Sanitize our shame. See, he's bringing to the surface. He's, he's dredging up the shame in her soul. You want to know why? So he can sanitize it. So he can heal it. Here's the end result. It tells us the woman goes back to her community, the place that she was avoiding, and tells them, come meet a man who told me everything about myself, yet still loved me. She was hiding in broad daylight. Then she encounters Jesus Christ, and she starts telling people about the light of day broadly. Are you seeing the connection here? See, the word of God doesn't just teach us what's right for us. That's good. But it also exposes what's wrong in us, and I need that. I'm honest as a minister. I'm jacked up, church. I'm messed up. I'm broken. And if I'm not confronted by God's word, I'll never fess up. So I need the word of God. Not only 119.105, the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I need the word of God to reveal the broken state of my soul like an x-ray. The word of God reveals the very things in my life that are crooked when I place it alongside the perfect integrity of God's word, not only perfect authority, as we covered, perfect integrity, perfect straightness is the word, perfect equity, perfect justice. The only way for you and I to reveal what is crooked in our lives is if we place our lives alongside the word of God. And the only way to discover what's crooked in society is if to place the perfect straightness of God's word along the side of it. The word of God is perfect integrity, which means it cannot be broken, and, and, and within it, it has the power to heal what's broken. You know, if man had a hand in this, man would be able to destroy it. Anything that man makes, man can destroy. Yet all of these years later, the word of God stands the test of time and scrutiny there are no contradictions in this book. The only thing it contradicts is me. See, the Bible has been attacked by many people of great power, great ability, great authority. They've mustered up all their intellectual, all their scientific, all their philosophical, all their political, and even all their physical forces they could command to destroy it. Emperors tried to burn it. Critic, critics tried to bury it. Scholars try to discredit it. The world tries to ignore it. Yet, while human governments have fallen, while human philosophies have failed, the word of God still flourishes. And if y'all don't clap there, I'm going to pass out because I need to catch a breath. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Here, get your pens out. Greek, Hebrew, and English. This word perfect will blow your mind. In Greek, Hebrew, and English, the word perfect means perfect. It's perfect. Cannot be broken, unfractured. Let me kind of go through this quickly. Within the word of God is internal unity, external validity, eternal prophecy, and eventually transformational potency. First, internal unity. 66 books in one, written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. Each of those authors, of course, different backgrounds, different educational experiences, different hardwiring and personalities. They had different cultures. There was different languages. 
they were statesmen and kings and shepherds and tax collectors all contributed to the same book that holds the same theme. Unbreakable. Jesus said in John 5, 39, in this book, you're searching for eternal life? Well, find it. The book points to me and I give eternal life. How do you want to read the Bible in a day? Let's do it right now together. This is pretty awesome. In Genesis 22, 7, we see Abraham taking his son Isaac up a mountain. God told him to sacrifice his son. Isaac has the wherewithal to see his dad, to see the wood, to see the fire. And he says, hey, dad, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb. It's a prophecy. That's answered in John chapter 1, verse 29. When John the Baptist looks off into the distance and he sees his cousin, but now the revelation, behold, the Lamb of God. Where's the Lamb? There's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we just sang it this morning, church. You either believe this or you don't. Revelations chapter 5, verse 12. For all eternity, we are going to surround the throne room and we are going to say, Worthy is the lamb. Where's the lamb? There's the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. You just read the Bible and its theme in less than a minute. Within the book, internal unity, external validity, which means they are unveiling. Look, hey, the cynics in here, young ones usually, the millennials, you're trying to say, I don't know about the Bible because there's not a lot, enough evidence in the Bible. Look at me carefully. Historicity, archaeological dig sites, Palaces, wars, the timeline of history proves the Bible's accuracy. They are uncovering scrolls and scripts that prove God's word. But we got it backwards. Unveiling a palace does not prove God's word. God's word proves the unveiling of that palace. Because God said that happened, it happened. Internal unity, external validity, the testimony of the Lord is sure. You're, you have a testimony. Your testimony is what God did in your life. Did you ever consider God has a testimony? That's what that Bible verse says. The testimony of the Lord is sure, absolute, supported. The testimony of the Lord is what God is willing to do for our lives. When I say his testimony is sure, I'm saying eternal prophecy. The only holy book in all of the world where one-third of its pages are prophetic in nature which means God said something and it happened. 332 prophecies alone were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Improbable, impossible, cannot happen unless God said it and it happened. He nailed it. Finally, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Ready? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, transformational potency. This book changes us from the inside out. The Christian is not marked, however, by an informed mind. The Christian is marked by a transformed heart. What marks you as a believer is not because you memorize scripture, not because you have an informed mind. What marks you as a believer is that God has taken your life out of darkness and put you in light, out of death and given you his life. What marks us is transformation. It's the word metamorpho, Greek, which is metamorphosis. We learned this in grade school. It's what happens when a caterpillar who's inching its way through life wraps itself in a cocoon and then emerges on the other side a beautiful butterfly, completely 
different than what it originally was. We are transformed. We are completely different than what we originally were. That's why Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, the cocoon of his love, they are a new creation. Old things passed away, dead. Behold, all things have become new. New language, new perspective, new responses, new reactions, new attitudes, new joy, new love. Everything about the believer is new. If you've not felt that, perhaps your faith has become stale. And the Lord has sent me to this fellowship to say, you need to get back in my heart. And it's in my heart where I begin to put my breath, which is a better definition for transformation. It's how the Lord takes our heart of stone and through his spirit makes our heart his home. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Always goes back to the word. And my father will love him and we will, ready? Come to him and make our home with him. Now we think, at least the Christian in America, that as long as I come on a Sunday morning, I've given God the living room of my heart. And God goes, no, I want more than the living room of your heart. I want more than 90 minutes on a Sunday. I want your heart every day. I want the attic. I want the basement of your life. I want that private closet that you're hiding all your deep, dark secrets in. I want the kitchen. I want mastery over the bedroom. I want the office. God says, I want the hurt in your heart. I want all of your heart. That's what happens when he gets a hold of your life. He makes your heart his home. He owns it, I then have more room to breathe. Definition for salvation in the Old Testament. Deliverance, of course, somebody has been saved or delivered. Somebody has found salvation, they're preserved. My favorite definition in the Hebrew is room to breathe. I said, wow, salvation means room to breathe when circumstances are suffocating and I have the oxygen of God's word, does not matter what's closing in on you when you have access to God's word. Here's the verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. The word inspiration means God's breath. When you inhale his word, he gives you spiritual, emotional room to breathe. Anxiety is the complete opposite of that. It suffocates, it strangles. Worry or worship? What does the word of God do? God's breath, it's profitable for doctrine, for teaching. That's what we're doing this morning. It's profitable for reproof. Interesting word. It means conviction. The word of God is profitable for conviction. Let me kind of help you with this word. Reproof, we're going to add a a word in between the word. Reinforced proof. You want reinforced proof that God is good? Get in his word. And I'm not saying that from a five-foot platform. I'm saying that from experience. I'm saying that from watching a mother and a father in 2005 lose a son, my oldest brother, John. 28 years old, suddenly died. What compounded that tragedy was four months prior, in August of that year, he just had his first daughter, who is now the same, she, she was at the time the same age, four months old, as my baby girl. So I'm seeing the compound fracture that took place in that tragedy. We're mourning a brother, my parents are mourning the loss of a son, and then there's this four-month-old girl who would never know her daddy. 
But I watched mom and dad through real tears and snot and grief and anguish and pain as an open casket has the shell of their son, my father's namesake, yet they stood on a platform where there were people from all walks of life who in their minds, and we heard some of the people saying this, if God is so good and they're the Christian family, why would he allow that to happen? And I watched mom and dad stand on a stage and say, yeah, we know this doesn't look good. This doesn't feel good. But our God is good. Our God is always good. See, they could make that statement because they knew his heart. And the believer that knows God's heart does not question God's will. I know that's hard to swallow. But when you trust God's heart, you can then trust his will and what he's allowed. Okay, pastor, I get what you're saying here. The word of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness. This is all for my godly living. It thoroughly equips me for every good work. But I don't get inspiration from that book. It's boring. I try to read it. I just don't get anything out of it. What's your advisement? You got a Bible in the year plan? Yeah, every day you read it? Cool. You've gone through it, right? Yep. When's the last time you allowed it to go through you? You've opened it. When's the last time you were open to it? When's the last time you let God do surgery on your soul? When's the last time you opened up your life with full transparency, full honesty, said, Lord, here I am. I don't have it all together. I know the people at my church think I do. I know everybody that follows me on Instagram thinks my life has it all together. But I am broken, I am battered, and I need you. When's the last time the people of God were desperate for God? See, some of you don't like the way I'm preaching makes you feel uncomfortable. That's why I am grateful that the word of God is perfect accessibility. I have access to him. It's not restricted to a time or a place. You can go to God anywhere, no matter what's going on around you. Perfect accessibility. Right after I got done here last time, I guess it was January or February, um, I went to a pastor's conference a month later in California. There were 4,500 attendees at this conference. Not everybody there was a pastor, maybe aspiring ministers, lay elders, but a majority of them were pastors. And I'm there for the week just kind of soaking up the conference, and out in the courtyard were concessions and foods and coffees, and I'd go out there and beautiful Callie's son, I got my cup, and I just want to get my coffee and wait for the next session. And, of course, everybody's got a name tag, and at the bottom of your name, it says where you're from. And mine said Ocean City, New Jersey. So as you can imagine, uh, I would engage with people who saw my name and knew where I was from. Oh, my goodness, you're from New Jersey? What are you doing way out here? Well, I came out here to enjoy the conference, and I'd try to get out of that conversation, get to the coffee, and, hey, hey, are you a pastor? I don't know why that question was so relevant. Maybe because it was a pastor's conference, but I don't know. Are you a pastor? And I would say, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, what seminary did you go to? What seminary did I go to? And I would say, well, I went to a small institution in New Jersey called Southern State. And they would say, well, uh, how many years did you have to study at that program? And I would say, well, I could have done five to ten, but I wound up doing about four years and seven months. And then you can see their minds churning, trying to figure this out. Wait a second, hold up. What seminary is this institution a part of? And I would use the gift of mumbling, and I would say very quickly, Southern State Correctional Facility. And he would say, 
did you say Southern Baptist Theological Seminary? And I would say something like that. A lot of the conversations with some of these men will turn into them being amazed at where I was, what I did, and how God, in spite of me, would still choose to use me. It was amazing grace, but a majority of them, after I told them what I did and that I was a pastor, many of them were quick to tell me I was not equipped to be a pastor and I need to go to seminary. And there's nothing wrong with those who have been called into ministry who have gone through seminary, but I found it disturbing that here they are trying to prescribe to me their way into ministry. Can you imagine if I prescribed upon them my way into ministry? Let me make my point very clear. Seminary without Jesus is a cemetery. And a cemetery with Jesus becomes a seminary. Now you might be nudging your spouse going, hey, we gotta look into that school he was talking about. Don't do that. I'm talking about prison. I'm talking about being locked up. I'm talking about even though I was locked up, cut off from society, I did not have to wait until I got my act together. I didn't have to go to a schooling. I did not have to ask permission. I had access to God's amazing word. Most important thing I will say to this assembly this morning, it's no other book of literature comes personally with the author. I was able to sit with the author of the book every day and like I said earlier, find my peace and my purpose and explode upon my day with the grace that God had given me. And I'm talking about not just getting into this book so that we can quote Psalm 23 by memory. I'm talking about getting to know the shepherd of Psalm 23 intimately. And when you are his sheep and he is your shepherd, you can hear his voice. And when you hear his voice, you not only discover whose you are, you learn who you are. And a lot of believers struggle with who they are because they don't know who God is. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 talks about doing the word, not hearing it only, deceiving yourself. Right? It talks about looking into the perfect law of liberty. When I look into the word of God, it's a mirror. It reveals one part of me, sinner. But the more I stare in the pages, the more I see a new image overwhelm the image sinner, and it's the image of the Savior. And that image then becomes my identity. And then I walk in that image, and I am a Christ-bearer. I share that image with the world. Now you say, you've given us so much this morning, Pastor. Where do I start? You start in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Well, I thought that was just for a pastor. No, that word preach, it means to herald. It means to allow the word of God to soak your tongue. And in every conversation that you have, you bring blessings and life. Preach the word. In season, out of season, when it's comfortable, when it's not comfortable, when you're at work, around people that don't believe in what you believe in, when you're at the Bible study, preach the word, live the word, convince people. That word convince is the same word we used earlier, reproof. It means convict. Convince means to convict. I get done preaching and people come up to me and go, Pastor, do you know you yell when you preach? And I go, yeah, that's right. It's only acceptable to yell when you're watching the Philadelphia Eagles, right? AKA when you're excited, AKA enthusiasm, which is a Greek word, and theo, which means full of God. You wanna know why I preach this way? Because I'm not naive. 
I know that everywhere I go and everywhere I preach and everywhere I speak, there are people in the assembly that don't believe what I believe. But you better believe that when they leave, they'll believe whether or not I believe what I believe. And there are people in your life who don't believe what you believe, but you better believe that they'll believe whether or not you even believe what you say you believe. Rebuke, calling out error, exhort, edify, encourage. It means to build up. Your words will build up with all long suffering, which is patience. I know you're planting seeds and loved ones and family members and coworkers, and you feel like they're not receiving it. And I say, keep preaching the word, keep planting the seed, and be patient and teach. Teach means to explain. And we need to have an answer for the questions asked of us as Christians. You want to know why? Because the world has questions, and the Christian is stuttering that doesn't know Bible. Paul's not done. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. I'll go through this quickly. He says, For the time will come when they will, endure, will not endure sound doctrine. This is the church. The time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have, ready, itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Listen, a message may sound good. Here's my question. Is it sound to God? People are amounting themselves, teachers. Now, people come up to me all the time and ask about certain ministers, popular ministers from the pop church. They have huge followings. Let me give you a litmus test on whether or not they're giving you truth or they're just trying to be cute. First of all, this is a style They'll have the microphone out here like this. This is what's popular. They'll never go back to their Bible. They won't read any scripture. They'll tell a lot of cute stories, a lot of fables. Here's the litmus test. If a sermon can be a TED talk, it's dead talk. If you're reading a book, listening to a podcast, watching your favorite YouTube minister, and they mention Jesus, but you can remove Jesus' name from that message, and the message still remains the same, it is a lie. It is not the truth. They are looking to make the people feel comfortable with what is called the prosperity gospel. See, sound doctrine does not tickle the ear. Sound doctrine scratches the soul. And there are times as a minister, I need to be reminded that I'm off, that I'm wrong. And the word of God scratches it. And I leave feeling convicted. I needed to hear that. The word of God leads to transformation, not an informed mind, a transformed heart. I can have access to God at any time, anywhere. God wants to take the believer and put him on display as the evidence that he is real, he is true, and he is unchanging. I pray my life has done just that this morning. My role is to present the scriptures to your ears, and I pray that the Holy Spirit seals them upon your heart.